welcome to the Fromer Travel Show. I'm your host, Pauline Fromer. So nice to have you along for this ride. And it should be an interesting show because I have a co-host today, at least for this first segment. You know him, you love him. Jason Cochran, editor-in-chief of Fromers.com. Welcome back. Hi, Pauline. Good to be back. Well, I think it's going to be an interesting show today because both you and I have been traveling. Yeah, we're literally uh, back. <laughs> we're literally back. So we, we actually are doing what travel writers should be doing, and we'll discuss we'll discuss that. So why don't we start with you, Jason? Where have you been? Yeah, I needed to kind of, you know, break the membrane of having gone international after what, you know, year and a half. And so I went to Canada. Um, no specific goal in mind, just to sort of get back in the fields of travel, you know, and enjoy being somewhere that wasn't my four walls or my town again. Right. So yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I went out. I went up to Montreal, uh, timed it so that I would see the leaves, which I did. Nice. And I'm very happy about it. And it's a it's a very different experience traveling internationally now. But uh, I did well, it, how? and I know it's not that impossible. It's just a few more steps. Okay. Well, well it, let's discuss the, some of the steps. So okay. what's the first step that you have to take if you're going to go internationally anywhere? That you wouldn't have to otherwise do. Like we all know about buying the tickets. Right. And I assume we all sure. know about wearing the mask on the airplane. The, the big thing that Canada requires is not just proof of vaccination, which I've got and was easy to show, but they also require a negative PCR COVID test. Before you go, um, at least right. 72, no more than 72, 72 hours before you leave. And this is where it got really interesting. I don't know if you know, of course, you know, Pauline, because, you know, you're Pauline Fromer. You know that this week <laughs> I um, America has set new rules, or at least it's it's now defined what it wants people to do when it comes into the United States uh, starting later in November. And one of those things it wants people to do, it says explicitly is – do a COVID-19 test three days before you get here. And it said, like, let's say you leave on January 19th. You can test anytime January 16th. So a lot of people are going to be reading that information and think, oh, great. If I'm leaving on Thursday, I can just test anytime on Monday and it'll work. That is true, but only if you come into the United States. When ah. you leave, it is not always that. It is three days but it's 70, 72 hours specifically for three days. And in Canada's wow. case, the flight was leaving a little in the, later in the day. I saw people being ejected, you know, told that they can't board for having taken their test three days before, but before the flight time. So what would work oh. to get into America would not work to get into Canada, even though they're both around three days. Wow. That was very interesting and heartbreaking because – in my case, there's one direct flight to Montreal every single day, and that person oh. had to wait another day. The person who was were they upset? Were they no? No, I think out? we all just sort of know that COVID is COVID, and I, they weren't you know cheering and throwing confetti, but they didn't right. raise a stink. But you mm. could you could feel the uh, dejection as you would feel, of course. Uh, that of course. Yeah, and it's it's you don't necessarily realize it because some countries are saying three days, and it's wishy washy, and some days are saying three days, but it must be seventy two hours. And in Canada's right. case, they pay a fine. If So she literally – and then you know, I wrote a whole article about this on Fromers.com. Uh, it's on the homepage underneath the Arthur Fromer online section. And it talks a little bit what, about what you need to think about. For example, yeah. you may not know when you take your COVID-19 test if the time that you took it will be listed on the final result. There's really no way to know. You can't you – know, most of the people who administer the test aren't going to know what the result looks like. Someone else handles that. 
So it's tricky because you may not actually have the time of test, time of day printed on your result. So there's oh a couple of workarounds. I tell people to take it two days ahead. In my case, she couldn't find the time on my result. It was taken by Walgreens. And uh, so instead, I showed her my appointment email, I showed her two huh. emails. And the appointment email was enough to satisfy her because the appointment oh was about goodness. 40 minutes later than our takeoff time, uh, you know, That's- three days later. That's nutballs. That's crazy. That reminds me of the time when I was a kid. I got into, I can't remember which Caribbean island. I forgot my passport, but I had my library card with me. Back in those days, those types of workarounds were accepted. It's interesting. And I was a kid. It's interesting that uh, they will accept these strange types of workarounds for something as serious as when you took the COVID-19 thing. It, Here's it was, my- it was dicey. You know, it was, she yeah. was hemming and hawing and looking at her coworker saying, can I accept this? Now I'd thought ahead and I had taken two tests that day at two different places because so many drugstores that you go to now are saying, you'll get your test in, you know, 48 to 72 hours. And I thought that's cutting it close. So I'll do two. Huh. My second test was completely in the afternoon. It definitely would have worked. We didn't get to that one, but I did have huh. a fallback. But who wants to spend half a day taking two COVID-19 tests when you're, you know, you've got other things to do when you're planning to leave for it? Well, I, I know that you also write, wrote an article about uh, something else travelers do, which is they pack a COVID-19 test and take it in their hotel room. I usually have to go on Zoom to do that, but there are yeah. problems with that too, Right. Well, you have to be observed, you know, so that's right. why the Zoom call comes in. You can't just do it by yourself. You can, a lot of people make that mistake. They buy a COVID-19 test if they can find one and then they just take it. But that does not good enough because someone has to watch you do it, which is why, you know, all the drive throughs at all the pharmacies are so full of people doing it because they can see you swabbing yourself through the window. And uh, another problem with those Zoom tests is some of them are oversubscribed. They don't have and understaffed. and understaffed or the time of day. It's very busy because everyone wants to get ready for their flights. So I decided on the way back, because of course you have to retest to come back right. into the United States. But it's it's a different kind of test. You can take, in, to come back into America, you can take a rapid antigen test, which you cannot take to go into Canada. So uh, there was a place in downtown Montreal where I made an appointment. I ran in. I was in and out in probably two minutes, but it cost me 75 American. But I knew it was done and I had my test that way. So it was much easier, quote unquote, except for the expense coming back than it was going. And did you have to show your vaccine card to go to restaurants there? I mean, how how strict was Montreal? Yeah, they're very strict. You know, if you wanted so much as a cocktail in in a in a cocktail bar with two people in it, you had to show your vaccine card. They're very diligent. I even had to show my vaccine card at the airport coming back, which is weird because I'd already had to show my vaccine card, my COVID nineteen test. I'd gone through two border securities. I'd gone through regular safety security, and after all that, I still had to show my vaccine card again to eat at the airport restaurant. That's in Montreal's wow. airport, so they're very diligent uh, hmm. there. In fact, there's even sign up sheets outside of restaurants where you put your name and your phone number. I'm assuming that's in case there's an outbreak, they can call you, but I'm not sure if that's why. But it would serve to do that if they wanted to. Oh, but they they're, you, do, they're in, doing very well. What's that? In New York City, uh, you have to give your phone number. And yeah. uh, ho- restaurants are using it in a very interesting way. I often will get uh, an email because my phone number, I guess, is listed on those sites that allow you to book uh, restaurants like Resi mm-hmm. and Open Table. And so they'll send me an email afterwards saying, how'd you like it? And leave a review and all that stuff. And I just thought you were asking me for my phone number so you could track me in case somebody had 
COVID. Maybe they but are, no. but yes. even in Canada, like even at the at the uh, airport restaurant, which is unlikely to ask for a review, they wanted my phone number. So it might be a law. Right, right. So how long were you there for? For five days. I wanted to go for five less, days. for fewer, but I was like, well, I have to do the COVID-19 test at three days. So, yeah. you know, I might as well stay for four. And then, yeah, so it ended up being a, a five night thing. And it was great because, you know, the parks were gorgeous. The weather was not too cold. You know, I walked around. They have some beautiful old mansions on the slopes of the hill where Park Montreal oh, yeah. is. And some just just loved loved the old. Uh, uh, there's some great like mosaic type uh, from the 1940s in the old train station they have downtown. I checked those out. The town was a little sad. You can tell that, uh, that Quebec has been quite hard hit. It was mm. the worst hit province in, in Canada. And wow. a lot of stores have closed because Montreal has a, gr- a lot of places from the 50s and 60s and cafes that look like they've been open since before you were born. And a lot of them haven't made it. Uh, and a lot of old signs, uh, you know, I'm worried about being preserved right now. We're at that point where things have closed, but nothing's moved in yet again. So huh. it was a little grim compared to your normal trips. But, it, you know, I also, Canada does tend to start to shut down in the late fall. And so I could have, sure. it's a little it bit of a Venn diagram between the two, right? Because yeah. the summers yeah. are so glorious us there, right? So who yeah. knows how, you know, how rough it'll be when the next spring rolls around. But I could feel feel a difference for sure. And and people were wearing masks everywhere, even partly on huh? the street. There's you know, Everyone was putting sanitizer on their hands as they walked into every store. Every store had a big jug in front so that when you browse, you're not sharing germs. So it was um, effortless in that sense. It was just the, the tests maybe had made me very nervous before I went. And now having gone, I see that you can ask your hotel where you're saying, where can I get a night COVID-19 test? And they'll have a place sure. probably to recommend for you. And the airport, when you get off, there'll usually be a sign that says, don't forget when you go back, scan this and you'll make an appointment to take a test here if you want because you could also huh. just go to the airport early and take a test three hours ahead oh. of time there too so they've, they've got that down you're not going to be lost in a void if you travel the, the tricky the trickiest part is just not knowing before you leave exactly how it's going to work but it, it right does work. right interesting you know i was just in san francisco and at the airport there you can get a vaccine which i thought was fascinating huge signs everywhere get a vaccine this is before you check in uh, in the open area of the airport. I guess a lot of people do it that way. It's interesting, though, because a lot of places won't let you in, especially internationally, unless you have vaccinated, completed your vaccination at least right. two weeks before. So, you know, I wouldn't recommend waiting to the no. airport to get your vaccine if you're planning on no. going somewhere no. that requires it. Right. At later on in this show, I am going to speak with an editor from National Geographic about their new book, uh, which is on great long weekend getaways all around the world, which is why I was asking you how long you were gone for. I just recently was in, as I said before, Atlanta, although while I was there, there was a bomb cyclone going on and a river weather event. So it was, uh, the rain was coming at me sideways. I spent most of the day when I wasn't at the travel show, just in my hotel room working. It yeah. was very sad. But yeah, but the weekend before, I was in Atlanta. Oh, okay. So wait, the bomb cyclone was not in Atlanta. You said Atlanta. Where no. was the bomb cyclone? Oh, sorry. The bomb cyclone was in uh, San Francisco. Oh, sorry. okay. Got yes, it. yes, yes. San Francisco. No, Atlanta, the weather was gorgeous. And what a fabulous city. I hadn't been in a number of years. And I I don't think I've ever taken the time, you know, I've always been there for work. So I haven't taken the time to just run around and have fun. And you can have a lot of fun there. You know, I should have asked my next guest who is from Nat Geo why it didn't make the book for one of the best long weekends, because I think it's the ideal long weekend vacation 
First of all, the food is so fabulous. They do something that I rarely see outside of New York City. They line up for the really great places. Uh, There are places, especially for brunch and breakfast, where the food is so delicious that they there's a line out the door. But this being Atlanta, which has a real party spirit at one of the places I went to, which is called the Atlanta uh, Breakfast Club, they had like a dance party going on at the line. They had a DJ out there and everybody was dancing in the parking lot. It was hilarious. And it's good that I got, I worked off some calories because the food, I don't know, was probably a week's worth of of calories within one breakfast. It was insane, but delicious. I had the, the peach cobbler pancakes which had fresh stewed peaches on top. And then I also had uh, the fried green tomato sandwich, uh, BLT kind of, which was also, wow. Uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of places claim to be able to do fried green tomatoes, but if you do it poorly in Atlanta, you're not going to be there for very long. So right, you can absolutely. usually get some really, to, they have to be the, can't have been cooked too long before they served you. They can't be too bready. You know, they've got to be just right. And they usually are. Yeah, and not just down home, you know, Southern cooking. Also, very sophisticated world cuisines were presented. I went to this incredible uh, seafood restaurant in what is called Krog Street Market. In past years, uh, in just like the last decade, Atlanta has been really, really innovative in the way it's reusing parts of the urban landscape that had been abandoned. And so they have these areas called the beltways where there had been trains and they've created uh, walking trails and biking trails. And they're absolutely gorgeous. Often they're sided with works of art. And along these trails has been a lot of urban renewal. So they took this 1920s era, uh, uh, it was a warehouse for a manufacturing company and created this fabulous indoor-outdoor market where I had one of the best seafood meals I've had, and I can't tell you how long, and you know, I love oysters. I'm usually a bigger fan of West Coast oysters because they're sweeter. On the East Coast, they tend to be very salty. They had oysters from the Gulf of Mexico, which I haven't seen anywhere else. And they were as sweet as what you get on the West Coast, but but also had their own unique flavor. It, it, It was Really, just a, so uh, on the culinary side, it was fantastic, and this is the this is where Martin Luther King was a pastor. So incredibly fascinating recent history, which just in the last five years they've opened the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, which is this state of the art museum that talks about the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s in this really visceral way. This is going to sound hokey, but there's one exhibit where you sit on a, on a stool, almost as if you're at a counter at a luncheonette, like the people who were trying to integrate the luncheonettes of the South did. And you have to put your hands on the counter in front of you. And that starts, and you have these earphones in, that starts this soundtrack of people yelling, you know, racial slurs at you. And as you're sitting there, your chair starts to vibrate and then it almost feels like it's being kicked and they, they time you. How long can you sit and take this? Mm. And it, it actually was very hard. I left crying. It was 
it was the most visceral explanation of what those volunteers went through and the, the, the bravery it took. And then the next exhibit is all about the Freedom Riders and the extraordinary violence uh, they encountered. It's just a, a, a fabulous museum. Right now, unfortunately, some of the Martin Luther King sites are closed, but this is a good replacement. And then he's you buried know, there with his wife, right? Really near there at the King Center. He's isn't buried. He? He's buried very near there at the King Center. I think that's closed because of COVID. It should be reopening. Ebenezer Baptist Church, where he was the minister, is also not taking visitors right now. But that those all should reopen soon. And I also went to the Atlanta History Center, which has this incredible cyclorama where you see the Battle of Atlanta, as well as a an a an exhibit that that also is very visceral about the Civil War and about it doesn't forgive the South for what it did. I think it's very clear eyed about the fact that that the Southerners were rebels and that it was about slavery, that they wanted to keep their slaves. But it also shows how much the South suffered. Uh, You know, I think 25% of all white men died during the Civil War from the South, which which had incredible social ripples in in terms of the uh, communities of the South. So really, really great things to see and do. The one thing I thought was just plain stupid uh, was the World of Coca-Cola Museum. Uh, You know, that's just one long commercial. Everybody feels they need to go to it, but it's it's just not worth it. And it's expensive. I think it was like $18. Um, Yes, there is a fun place where you get to try different Coke products from around the world. But eh, not worth eighteen dollars. I guess if you have a difficult to please six year old or something with you, you know, yes, that's your option. Yes. And it's it's near the aquarium too, so you just sort of make a day of silliness. Right, which I, I didn't get to go to this time. I have in the past though, and that's one of the best aquariums in the in the country. It's you know, really there is still a restaurant where Martin Luther King used to go to eat and it's still open. It's been open since the forties. It's called Pascal's. They do great fried chicken. It's on the Southwest side and you can still sit in the booth where he and his colleagues used to sit and make plans. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, so when you go Amazing. back to Atlanta, there's still some places left that aren't museums that are still uh-huh. operating that hail from that time and are as beloved as, you know, some of these other places you've been talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, Atlanta, great long weekend destination. It won't be discussed by my next guest, but I think you should go there. Before we go, Jason, I just want you to quickly fill everybody in on Southwest Airlines. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we saw a huge meltdown. You ca- covered on Fromers.com. Is that going to happen again? Can people book it, especially for the holiday period? Yeah, so what the was question your I ask is, should you feel comfortable choosing Southwest Airlines for your holiday plans. Because, you know, as we, as you just said, there's, there were meltdowns. Uh, there, they claimed that there wasn't enough staff because there had been an early storm and that set everything out of balance for, for four or five days. But concurrently, there was a fight with some of the staff members in the, the union who didn't want uh, the vaccine mandate. And they had gone to court. And so there was some confusion in the media over whether it was being caused by a sick out or not. Well, both the union and Southwest said the recent the mess that they had was not caused by a vaccination sick out. But hmm. that's not to say that that problem has been solved and that couldn't become a problem later right. on, which is why I say you really should think about whether you 
want to fly on Southwest for the holiday season because on December 8th, that's the day right now that air, any airline that has or any business that has government contracts has a 100% vaccination mandate for its staff. Southwest doesn't want to do it. The, the, the CEO said he doesn't want to do it. The pilots union say they don't want to do it. And they won't report so far how many people have been vaccinated. That deadline's coming up. And they will lose their government contracts if, if the rule isn't changed before then. And the government right now is Southwest's biggest client. The same huh. thing is going on to a lesser Ooh. extent at American. Right. So that's something to consider. You know, December 8th is this very messy deadline day that if this isn't solved right now, we have a game of chicken happening and nobody's giving. And if nobody gives, then the system's not going to work for at Southwest. Well, this, this morning, I believe the judge said it would not listen to the union's uh, arguments uh, against Southwest, the pilot unions. Yeah, it doesn't solve it, right? You know, because right. the union does, still doesn't want to do it, no matter what the judge says. So, who knows what's going to be happening? The other thing to consider: Southwest is special in that you know we've all been at the airport. We've seen a Southwest airplane come in. It unloads. It reloads. It's off before you know it. Your coffee's not even cold. That's the way Southwest works, and so that's how come uh, staffing problems can cause a snowball effect that lasts for days because it's a very fine balance. Of huh. where, where its staff is at any moment, where they're supposed to be going. And if that you know doesn't happen as quickly as it, as it should be happening because Southwest is running out of staff, there could be another meltdown. And they had two meltdowns in July, too. Don't forget, there were some IT problems in that case. Right, um, but right. It all kind of comes back to, st- to staffing now. And the staffing yeah. issues have not been solved. So if, if you do book Southwest, I really strongly suggest that you have travel insurance that will cover it. If something happens that you can jump on another flight, no problem or cancel. If you see that there's a meltdown happening and get your money back with that travel insurance, because I don't, I don't think it's, it doesn't seem very solidly footed at the moment. A lot of airlines are having trouble. Spirit has had its trouble. Air American, as I said, has had its trouble. Southwest though, seems like it's uniquely headed to mix a metaphor, like a freight train toward, <laughs> toward, <laughs> towards trouble. Would you also recommend uh, travel insurance for American Airlines? Because they have just recently, I think you wrote about this too, changed their conditions of carriage so that if a, a plane is canceled, even if it's their fault, they're not going to put you on a competing carrier, which is something they used to do. That used to be very common. They're instead going to give you your money back, which sounds fine. Oh, you get a refund. But to try and use that refund on the day of travel to get another flight, you're going to have to pay a lot more. Flights are always more expensive on the day of travel. So do you think- you be stuck. Yeah, I think you should get you could get travel insurance for money back for any travel plans right now because it's not just yeah. labor issues that are causing trouble. There could be a new outbreak. There You could yeah. feel unwell. And it could, by the way, not even be COVID-19. It could be the flu or something more mundane. I think at this, things are so uncertain right now. We're all going by the skin of our teeth trying to get things back to normal. I would personally recommend travel insurance for full refunds, cancel for any reason, whenever you can get it right now. Yeah. Yeah. There's yeah. just so much yeah. going on. It's the smart thing to do, I think. Uh, and as we've always said in the past, best way to get travel insurance, we think, is to go to one of the marketplace sites like insuremytrip.com, squaremouth.com, travelinsurance.com. That way you can see all of the policies that are, are available to you and, and hopefully yeah, not overpay. it's like overpay. an Expedia that pulls policies from everybody in one place and then you can buy. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jason. Lo- lovely as always to speak with you. 
Thank you. Bye. Our next guest is Allison Johnson. She is a senior editor at National Geographic Books. Hey, Allison, so nice to speak with you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. At your latest book, wow, it's another beauty. It's called 1,000 Perfect Weekends, Great Getaways Around the Globe. What was the inspiration to do this book? You know, I think especially this this time that we're living in where people have been locked up for quite a bit, we're all looking for escapes, but our lives are really busy. So what we wanted to do was create a book that allowed people to get outside, go explore around them near and far and do it in a, a short weekend. So it doesn't feel like a belabored vacation that sometimes takes too much planning, too much time out of your busy schedule. This is These are all trips that you can take within 36, 48, 72 hours, either from home somewhere close by, or you know, if you have a long layover somewhere when you're traveling internationally or you want to tack on to a longer trip, these are 19 years worth of weekend adventures that you can have. <laughs> oh, wow. So you have it figured out. I was wondering how long it would take to do a thousand weekend <laughs> trips. But yeah, I did the math and it's almost almost 19 years. So there's a lot you can do in here. Make it your bucket list for a lifetime. <laughs> but some of these... You say uh, these are remote and off the grid options. Are mm-hmm. those really doable over a weekend if they're remote? Yeah, you know the remote and off the grid options. They they span the globe. So, for instance, there's a place in West Virginia which is only about three hours from where I live, and it's actually called the Quiet Zone. And there's no self service there. No internet access. It's all related to, I believe, a government or um, space technology center that's located near this quiet zone that needs to get rid of any satellite interference. So when you go to this part of West Virginia, you have to unplug. You have to turn off work. You have to turn off your cell phone. And the hotel you're staying in will have some sort of service so that you can contact family in case of an emergency or something. But there are weekends like that around the country where it's two, three, four hours from your home, but you're forced to be in nature to unplug, to enjoy the surroundings that you're in, and rather than check your phone for emails all day long when you're supposed to be on vacation. Well, that sounds like the perfect weekend, especially for those who want to be socially distanced, a word we didn't know. Now, (laughs) did you start researching this pre-pandemic? We did, actually. This book was initially planned well before the pandemic, and we had an initially just wanted to provide content for people looking to make quick trips. And then as the pandemic happened, we had to go back and look at everything we had included in this book and make sure, of course, they were still safe to do. They still existed because unfortunately, a lot of places um, did not survive the the pandemic. But now that we're kind of getting out of the coronavirus pandemic and knock wood. Yes, I hope so. Yes, knock on wood. (laughs) But people are feeling a little more comfortable getting out there. It feels like the perfect time for a book like this. If you're not ready to take that long vacation, if you don't want to go internationally, there are lots of options to get your feet wet again in traveling. Now, since I'm assuming you did not spend the previous 19 years researching (laughs) this book, Who were your writers and who were your photographers? Because the photography is glorious. 
Yeah, we use a number of National Geographic photographers for this. Too many to name them all. But sure. in, in, in all honesty, the book was really written by a team of fantastic travel writers who I've worked with time and time again. They include Joe Yogurst, who has written a number of books for us, including our best-selling 50 States, 5,000 Ideas. Carrie Miller, who has been a longtime National Geographic contributor and travel writer. Mary Ellen Kennedy Duckett. She actually wrote our Enabled Adventures chapter, which is one of my favorite. And she comes from personal experience having a husband who um, is wheelchair bound. Hmm. And so she was really able to speak firsthand about places and activities that really are for everyone. Megan Minor Murray, who's a fantastic writer based in Hawaii, did a lot for us in terms of outdoors adventures. Karen Carmichael, who has been a managing editor um, for National Geographic Travel for a number of years. And Abby Kozolczyk, who is also a well-known travel writer. Oh, I know Abby. She's wonderful. Yay. so wonderful. And they all put their expertise behind this book. And then we had about 50 writers throughout the National Geographic Travel Group who contributed personal essays to this book. So you'll find throughout, along with the itineraries that we offer, these firsthand essays from these travel writers about their own experiences doing these activities, these adventures, these weekends. And they're really wonderful firsthand accounts. Now, I am expecting to get through my email a message from Block Island, Rhode Island, because (laughs) they are probably going to say, we are the top vacation of the 1,000 weekends that National (laughs) Geographic said you could do, because they're the first in the book. Was it hard to decide who would be the first in the book? And does Block Island, Rhode Island deserve to be first? (laughs) Well, you know, we didn't rank them necessarily by priority or top one to 1,000. So it's definitely not in order by any means, but they do deserve to be in the book. And, you know, we wanted to start with beach vacations because I think often when people want to get away, beach vacations kind of are the first thing they think of, especially for a weekend trip, because what's better than sitting on a beach and unwinding? And Block Island was a favorite of our writers across the span of writers because it has 17 miles of beach. So you have plenty of space to spread out. It's scenic. There's plenty to do in town as well. It's very walkable. So it just felt like a really serene place to start the book with. Yeah, absolutely. And you also have some road trips in the book, which I thought was a fun way to spend a weekend, not just in one place. Can you tell us about one of your favorites? Yes, absolutely. So Joe Yogurt's wrote our road trips chapter. He is the expert in in road trips. He wrote our 100 Drives 5000 Ideas book. And one of my favorites, it's international. So you do have to be Um, in Africa to take this one, but it's a road trip that takes you through multiple safari stops in Kenya. So within one weekend, you can explore this region of Kenya near Mount Kenya, and you can visit a chimpanzee sanctuary, a safari club that offers horseback riding around Mount Kenya and Maru National Park, which is known um, for its appearance in the book and movie Born Free. And there you can take a safari game drive. So I love the idea that, you know, we always think of safaris as these big adventures, these 10-day trips, elaborate game drives. But really, if you're in the right place at the right time, it could be a weekend exploration for you in your own vehicle. And you know, I hate to say it, but that actually makes a lot of sense. It, the, Of course, it's a once-in-a-lifetime vacation for us Americans getting all the way across to the other side of the world. But 
I did a week-long safari, uh, actually mm-hmm. right before COVID, the, in December of 2019. And after a week, I didn't need to go on another game ride. In fact, <laughs> I probably could have done it in a weekend. And that's what I think, you know, you can tack this on to another trip. Let's say you plan that bigger trip to South Africa. You're visiting Cape Land and the Winelands a short hop over to Kenya on a flight and you could get your safari in pretty quickly and not feel like you'd seen it all by the time you're done. Yeah. (laughs) Now you're very on trend with two of your categories with many of them, but uh, foodie travel, that is Mm -hmm. so hot right now. What is one of the top foodie weekend destinations? So foodie travel is my personal favorite chapter. It's how my husband and I love to travel. We eat our way through every destination that we are in. One of I have two favorites in here. One is Montreal is a great foodie oh, city. Yeah. And we have uh, multiple entries on Montreal. One is about the food tours on offer. One food tour in particular takes you to what is considered Montreal's big three. So it's the best place to try poutine. Montreal style bagels and smoked meats. And I think that's so fun that you kind of get a taste of the culture there. And then there's lots of sightseeing in the St. Lawrence River to see, but there's also a melting pot in Montreal of different ethnic groups. So there's a little area that's called Little Greece. There's a little Chinatown. So you can try a world of cuisine in just one city. My other favorite entry in the foodie and and drink weekends is Traverse City, Michigan. And I know when people think of wine, they think of Napa and Sonoma, but Traverse City in Michigan is actually a great destination. It doesn't have as many crowds. It's in the center of the country, so it's a lot easier to get to for some people. It's only five hours from Detroit. And because of the cool climate, because they're right on the lake there, they have 40 wineries and vineyards. And I think mm. it's this hidden gem that people who love wine don't know exists. Yeah. And Sitting at these vineyards with lake views or farm views, they're known for their whites because of their climate. So Riesling, Chardonnays, and lighter bodied reds. But it's a great place to be. And the other wait thing before we oh god go ahead. I was going to say they're they're right outside of Traverse City are are two peninsulas of the Lillenau Peninsula and the Old Mission Peninsula, and they're both on the forty fifth parallel which if you know anything about wines, that's Bordeaux in France, that's Piedmont in Italy, that's the Otago region of New Zealand. The 45th parallel is where some of the world's best grapes grow. Exactly. And so they're right on the same parallel and they're producing fantastic wines, but people never think to go there for them. And one of my favorite things they produce is cherry wine because Traverse City is also known for cherries. They have a cherry festival, cherry pies, all of that. So they also have a specialty in cherry wine. That's really fantastic. Yeah. And they've got this whole setup in the middle of town where they've got all these food trucks. So you can pop from one to the next and and make a picnic of your meal. It's really fun. The other trend I was going to call out, which seems like a pandemic trend, is (laughs) pet travel. Mm-hmm. What is a yes. favorite place to take? Now, I'm assuming most people are not traveling with their parakeets. Most people, <laughs> it's going to be a dog. Yes. So what? what's a great place to take your dog? Well, you know, one of my favorite essays in the books was actually about near me. Um, the Virginia area is a really great pet-friendly destination. And this one of our writers, Megan Stosol, 
talks about visiting Charlottesville, Virginia with her dog for the first time and just how pet friendly it is. And if you know Charlottesville, it's the home of the UVA campus. It's so pet friendly. There's actually a lit serve for the students of spotting cute dogs. And I just love that fun fact. Um, wow. But you can really take your dogs there and explore. There's lots of vineyards to see, but there's also a lot of hiking trails that are easy enough for your, your dog to go along with you where you're going to get the beautiful scenery. And they the allow dogs because that's the dirty little secret. Most national parks and many state parks don't allow dogs. They don't. And so sometimes it's finding the different recreational areas outside of the park system where you can take your dogs. Austin, Uh, Texas is another great city for dogs. Um, They have Barton Springs, which is a very dog-friendly area in Zilker Park. They even have this area called Rowing, where in Lady Bird Lake, where rowing docks rents pet-friendly kayaks, canoes, and stand-up paddle boards. So oh my your dog goodness. can go on the water with you, which what, if what you're brave makes enough a, to take your dog. <laughs> what makes a kayak pet-friendly? How do they do that? They have a special seating area for them that is specialized wow. for dogs. And I believe they also provide dog life jackets so that you can, if your dog's not... <laughs> The perfect swimmer, you have a little extra safety. <laughs> wow, I'm amazed. I ha- That's the first time I'm hearing that that even exists. <laughs> wow, crazy. Well, as with all the Nat Geo books, it's absolutely beautiful. You can flip through it and it's something to dream on. Many, many congratulations, Allison. Thank you so much. I'm really excited for everyone to see this book and I hope it inspires them to get out there and explore. I think it definitely will. And thank you for listening to this week's show. And to those who are traveling, may I wish you a hearty bon voyage. Okay.